Good morning. This morning, we're going to be reading out of Psalm 37, verses 1 through 15, which can be found on page 435 of the Bibles under your seat. Psalm 37 says, Free not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass in winter like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, and those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteousness and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and the needy and to slay those whose way is upright. Their swords shall enter their own heart and their bows should be broken. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Casey. I'm uh, one of the pastors uh, here at Free City. And if you're with us for the first time, we, uh, we hope you feel welcome. Uh, we're glad you're here. Uh, we are, Ethan already mentioned, we're going to be here at Billy Mills uh, for a little while longer. We don't know exactly how long. And then we should be transitioning uh, back to Central. Um, and so there's going to be a We'll be here till we let you know otherwise, and then we'll need your help uh, moving back. And so go ahead and write that down. Um, every day, I might need to go help. Um, but uh, man, I, some of you guys uh, were able to roll out and help us uh, move central teachers in and move stuff. Man, they were so appreciative, and I'm so appreciative of you to come out and help. It was, it was great. It was great. I mean, some of our workers just got hugged by the new principal. I haven't even met the new principal. Uh, she hasn't hugged me. I haven't met her or anything. Uh, but that, listen, that's a good sign. Um, you know, by using their space, uh, they bless us in a lot of ways, and we look for opportunities to bless them back. Um, and so if you were able to roll out for that and help, thank you. Um, that kindness um, affords us more than you know. Um, and so we really, really appreciate that. Um, and so for uh, the next several weeks, um, as students are getting back and people aren't going to be on vacation, um, things will be kind of crazy, um, meaning uh, we might be low on seats, we're out of cups, our pets' heads are falling off, um, it's dumb and dumber. Um, and we're just going to ask you to be really uh, flexible with that. Um, and so there might be times where we're saying, hey, everyone, you know, move to the front and to the inside. And I know people are scared of the front and the inside, but you, you don't look at the first line. Fret not. OK, um, do not be envious of the people who come late and are in the back row. That's what Psalms 37 is all about. Um, and so it is speaking to you. Um, we also September 8th. Uh, we will start a new series um, where we'll be in uh, 1 John. And so our typical pattern, um, if you've been this for a while, you, you'll see this is we spend some time in an epistle, a letter, 
what that is, is the apostles, because of what they saw and experienced, what Jesus taught them, they wanted to instruct the church. They wanted to instruct us. Because the gospel has changed us radically, it affects how we live and how we think and how we manage and how we eat and how we do marriage and family and all this different stuff. And so the apostles wrote down, the gospel did this. This is what Jesus did, and now it affects us profoundly. And so in 1 John, a series that we're calling 1 John, um, we, uh, man, we're going to focus on, man, what do I do in this life when there's still so much doubt in my heart? Like, how, how do I have confidence in, in, in the scriptures? How do I have confidence that when Jesus saves, he saves fully? And if I'm in his hand, I can't be taken out. That means I can't even crawl out because I didn't do anything to be saved. I just responded to his grace. So I can't undo it. How can I be sure of that? I mean, I'm I'm excited. Like wrestling with doubt is not just like a a you thing. It is a we thing as God takes us to deeper moments of trust and of intimacy and of faith, like deeper places of faith. And yet the waves of this life still hit and I still have doubt. How can I have assurance? And so we're going to be there all semester um, in 1 John. Um, But until then, we have uh, several more psalms, including this psalm. And so this psalm, look, look down, in, in verse 1, you see these phrases. You see, fret not, and, and, and be not envious. And so the, these are commands. And, and so the psalm is dealing with this idea, and I'm going to make an, a case for it. And it's a little bit of a minority position case, but I'm going to make a case that it's dealing with opposite sides of what happens when we see people who care nothing about the fame of God or nothing about the name of God, nothing about the character of God, or, or, or nothing about the laws of God, and yet they prosper. Like what's easy to see in this is that you see, be not envious. But I think in that phrase, fret not, just as I was studying, I mean, I think it also talks, so on one side, we're in danger of seeing evil happen and evil prosper, and we're in danger of saying, why am I even trying? Why, why do I even care? Like, why, why am I even trying to follow after God? Why am I waiting? Why am I not being like everyone else? And what happens is we become envious we start to wish that we were actually just like them, opposed to God. Or envy lives in in so many other places. Envy lurks and lives. And the Bible tells us it is dangerous. And yet it's so common. But on the other side of the continuum, this is what I'm going to make a case for also, is that I think there's one side where I, I see that go on and I want to be them. I want to be just like them. I'm envious. But I think the phrase, fret not, and we'll unpack it, actually talks to like a burning hatred. Like a damning, burning, contemptuous hatred of like, who are they? where there's no more room for the grace of God to change lives because they are damned if we're gone. Like, I think this, we find ourselves somewhere on that continuum. And yet it's not like the gospel is like right in between. The gospel is altogether different. 
And so let me pray for us, and uh, we're going to get started. Father, Lord, I just, gosh, for a moment, we just need to confess. I'm envious. Hate builds up in my life. I see what others have or what they do or the success or the relationships or whatever I would fill in the blank. And it hits me somewhere. It hits me somewhere in that. And Lord, I need to confess that I need help. And so, Lord, like, where am I? You know, with your heads down, eyes closed, like, it, it, it would be a good exercise, like, entertaining that the Holy Spirit of God, who now lives and dwells inside believers to illuminate the person of Jesus, to draw you deeper into the gospel, that you might understand what is available for you, like, asking the Holy Spirit of God, Lord, would you sift in my heart, and would you show me, am I envious, or am I in danger of a burning and consuming, damning, self-righteous anger. And where? And Lord, we invite you to step into that and to heal that. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, envy, we'll just go ahead and start with that. We'll define, um, and so this is the first online dictionary that opened up in my Google search. Um, it is a, a feeling of discontent or, or resentful longing aroused by someone else's possessions, qualities, um, or, or their luck, their fortune, just what happens, what they get. And, and so like the, the words that are in that, like it, it, it's resentful and it's a desire, like resentful that someone else has it and desire that that i want it and like that definition it may kind of hit you in the head but i think envy actually it just hits us right in the heart envy is resentful desire for what others have when you believe you deserve it i mean the, the, the voice of envy in my heart it sounds like what the heck why them why not me like it lives everywhere I mean, it lives when you get asked to be a bridesmaid or a groomsman again, and you don't want to be on the side of the aisle anymore. You want to be in the aisle. And they made you buy the dress. And they're not even that cute, you know? I mean, that's where it lives. It lives there. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to be married and having that desire, but envy steps in and it poisons. It atrophies your faith. It taints your friend, the person who you love. It taints their whole day, even their character, and it starts to rob you and bring doubt of the goodness of God in your life. What the heck? Why them? What about me? Or or sometimes envy, it, it lives in the appearances of others. Like you look at people and you're like, oh my, they have the metabolism of a Greek god. Like they don't even eat keto, you know, I mean, and it just works for them. You saw them eat a Twinkie and they like discontinued Twinkies like 10 years ago, but they still have them. And you're like, why does it work out for them? Why do they just look like that? Why not me? They have a six pack and I want a six pack of Twinkies. Why not me? What the heck? Why them? What about me? 
or it lives in other places, like just general good health. I mean, have you ever asked, like, why am I diabetic? Why, why am I allergic? Why am I pale and freckly and dependent upon sunscreen everywhere I go? Or, or, or let's even get deeper. Why are their kids healthy and my kids aren't? Why didn't they get the report of cancer? Or, or why didn't they struggle with infertility? Or, or why did their pregnancy go to full term and, and my didn't? Why do I have to figure out how to tell everyone that it's no longer baby expecting, but it's miscarriage? Envy. Why them? Why not me? And there's nothing wrong with desiring health. There's nothing wrong with wanting healthy kids. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be pregnant. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. But envy steps in and it doubts the care and goodness of God as it resentfully desires whatever, what others have. Like, do you hear the fear in those things? Like, like the fear is like, man, I don't know if God really has like my best interest. I don't know if God really wants the best things for me. I don't know if I can really throw myself in on this God of the universe who seems to give everybody else what they don't deserve, but the things that I do deserve, I don't seem to be getting. The fear starts to attack at the very nature of God. I mean, I just don't know if he's for me, if he loves me, or if he sees me. You know, in envy, I mean, it's as old as sin. And I, I, actually, I would argue it might be like a second older than sin. As Adam and Eve, they looked at God and envy, you know, got their heart as they said, man, I don't know if God really wants the best for me. As Satan whispered in their ear, like, man, I've been watching and he doesn't want you to eat of this fruit because he knows that if you eat here, then you're going to be just like God. And all of a sudden it was like, man, maybe God just doesn't want me to really be all that I can. And sin was born. And so like it, it, it's always been disbelief and doubt in, in the goodness of God in your life. It's always been a moment where you make, you're actually making some pretty incredible claims against God. You say you love me and you have a plan for me and I say you're against me. You say you want good things for me, and I say it's actually evil. It's actually an assault against God. And so it's old. Man, we live in a day when Satan has the ability to visually throw the objects of our envy before our eyes through the constant barrage of social media and media in itself. You constantly see it. It's like it is an envy-producing machine. And like just the questions we want to say, like, are you aware of its power in your life? Or are you aware where there's holes in your life? Like, are you aware where it's painting your life with despair and doubt? Envy erodes belief in the goodness of God. Yeah, Psalms 37, there's probably not a, a better exposition of the third beatitude which i actually want to do in the spring we're not for sure yet but you know of matthew 5 5 where blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth look down at verse 11 you kind of see it set you know stated just a little bit different blessed are the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace 
And so what we have in Psalms 37 is David is unpacking what Jesus just said. And he says, hey, the meek here will get the land and they will get abundant peace, shalom. But Jesus takes it so much further. He says, blessed are the meek because they will get the world. And, and so it's just this unpacks it. And so thumbs, thumbs. Psalms, Psalms uh, 37, what we find is a little bit different from what we've been seeing in the Psalms. It, it, it's, it's a wisdom song, so it reads like it belongs in Proverbs. It, it, it speaks to us, not to God. It doesn't in, instruct or really ask a whole lot of God. It's speaking to us, and it's asking us. It's trying to convince us. It's instructing us, trust God. No matter what you see, it won't last. Trust God. I mean, over and over in the first part of this psalm, and we're not doing the whole thing, so we will get out of here sometime. The first part of this psalm, over and over, it is first warning us about the danger of envy and damning hatred. And then it's showing us how to fight it. And so the central truth of Psalm 37 is trying to convince you, it's trying to convince me, that those who love God have a security far sounder than anything else that you can perceive or you conceive or you could even ask for. It's way safer. It's way more secure. And it's actually way more abundant. And then it gives us some ability to fight it. And so Christian, this is telling us that we have an otherworldly certainty because of the never-failing love of God So fret not and be not envious. And so we're going to focus mostly on verses 1 through 11. In the first, we're going to have really two points. Um, Two points. And so we're going to focus on what is the danger that we're warned of. And the danger is this burning hatred, fret, and this resentful longing, envy. The danger is fret and envy in our heart. And then we're going to look to the psalm to ask the question, how do we fight it? And it actually says, it tells us to look all these different directions, and then it tells us to believe, and it tells us to do. And so let's get started on this. And so verses 1, 7, and 8, we see the same phrase, and it tells us what the danger is. It tells us the danger is fret, and the danger is envy. And so let's just look at that. Verse 1, it says, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of, of wrongdoers. And so we see that, but then we see it again in verse 7. It says in verse 7, look down there, it says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. And then it says this, fret not yourself. And you can impose and, and, and be not envious. It's not there. You know, the, the second phrase is the clearer phrase that the passage is clearly about. The first phrase is harder to translate and less clear, but it's more consistent. And so we would impose that, fret not and be not envious of the one who prospers in his way over the man who carries out evil devices. Now look at verse 8. It says, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. And then we see it again, fret not yourself. And we could impose and be not envious. It tends only to evil. Verses 1, 7, and 8. Fret not. Be not envious. Like Psalms 37 is clearly warning us of one danger. And that is the danger of envy. But I, I'm going to... I think it's warning us of two completely opposite dangers from the same source. When we see others prosper, we are in danger 
of a consuming, burning, damning, self-righteous hatred or a resentful longingness. And so let's deal with those phrases. The first one, fret not. And so I fret not, like, I, I, I'm making the case, I think this is the danger of a disdainful hatred uh, for sinners. You know, the, the phrase, it's, it's more consistent in the passage, but it's actually way, way more elusive. It comes from the Hebrew word chara, which means to burn. And it's almost always associated with a burning anger, contempt, or, or hatred. Like in looking at where it's used, it's almost always transferred as anger or hatred or, or contempt. And so like it, it's possible that it's just reaffirming like what envy can do. It can burn inside of you. But it's also possible that it has this idea that when we see people prosper from doing evil, like there is a danger of like this self-righteousness of just damning them where they are. When we see people who do what probably you actually want to do, or they have what you actually want to have, but you believe that God is holding out on you, there is a possibility of envy turning into this damning prejudice hate. Jesus encountered this in the first century with how people hated the tax collectors. I mean, over and over, you, you see these warnings, and they'll throw tax collector in there, of like you know sinners and tax collectors, you know don't be you don't want to be like them, and like I mean you know I don't know if anyone grows up and like man I want to work for the IRS. I mean I don't know. I mean I was like fireman, eh, IRS, you know, rolling up, um, and so I don't know if anyone does that. But like tax collectors worked for the enemy. I mean, what happened was you had the machine of the Roman Empire and, and what, what the machine of the Roman Empire did is they went out and they conquered people and they built roads so that they could then tax the people that they conquered. And so they conquered people to build roads to tax them so that they could go on and conquer other people to build roads to tax them. I mean, it had to be exhausting. Like, oh, that's just, we got to pay for this somehow. And so, I mean, over and over they conquered people and what they would do is they would kind of, you know, make some of the conquered people kind of police their own. And so what they would do is they would demand tribute, which means, okay, this people group, this city, this city state has to pay this much, and they would implore part of the conquered people. So they would, in, they would employ uh, you know, the t- tax collectors from among the Hebrew people. And so all of a sudden, I'm a conquered person, and now I'm working for the enemy that just conquered us. And all while I'm working, I have the strength of the Roman military standing behind me, and it turns to extortion. And so you have people getting rich on the backs of the people who've been conquered. They've turned against their own. It would be easy to hate tax collectors. I mean, but yet we see in the scriptures... You know, some of the biggest complaints about Jesus is, oh, man, he, he goes and he eats with sinners and tax collectors. Like Zacchaeus' life was transformed because Jesus embraced him and said, I want to be at your house. Jesus didn't have a burning hatred for him that said, man, just be damned. You've made too many wrong choices. Jesus entered into his life and it changed him. Or we can read the Gospel of Matthew and know that Matthew was a tax collector. 
called away from the tax booth. And so someone who was a tax collector becomes an apostle, a disciple of Jesus, and then writes scripture. Like that just doesn't, that doesn't really fit. It doesn't fit our motif because we put people in a category and once they've crossed too far, they're in like a damned section. Like there's no way to help them. They were easy to hate. They were easy to chara. They were easy to burn against with a damning hatred. And whether or not this is like strongly in the original scope, I think it's a warning we need to hear. Like we're in danger of being controlled by a self-righteous, damning, prejudicial hate where we see others do wrong and prosper. And we catch, we, we know that it's taking root in our lives when we catch our language saying things like us versus them or those people. Like if you haven't gone too far there's an ability for you to become us. But after this line, after this lifestyle, after this stance, then it's too far and you're part of them. And the gospel sees everybody as a them until it conquers your heart and makes you an us. There's not different statuses of lostness. And so the, the first warning is like we need to watch our hearts because we can quickly become self-righteous and just put people in this burning, hatred, damning category and think that the goodness of God is not for them. But the opposite is being envious of sinners. And so, look, in, in verse 1, 7, and 8, we, we impose that on the, in verse 7 and 8, but it's clearly about the danger of envy in our heart. I mean, it's more, it, it, it's, it's loud. Like, this is probably the louder thing in Psalms 37. When we see others prospers, especially others who seem to care nothing about the reputation of God or the laws of God, that we're in danger of like a burning envy in our lives, an envy that just grows, an envy that questions God. And we looked at all kinds of examples where it might lurk, whether it's health or relationship or, or promotion or status. And it just has this question of like, why not me? Why does it, why, why this? them does it even matter to you god do you even care and it starts to consume the thing that you think will save you that's going to make you which is not jesus it's it's something far more shallow it starts to consume us and it starts to change us lord of the rings you have Gollum, the Gollum figure, who started off kind of like a hobbit. Um, he was cute in a boat, that sort of thing. And then he comes across the ring of power, and he envies it, and he brings it in. And the longer that he plays with it, the more decayed he becomes, the less he can see in the world. And it tunnels his vision on one thing that's going to make him. And he calls it, my precious. Everyone else would look at it and say, it's your destruction, but he sees it as my precious. That's what envy does in our lives. 
we get an idea of, man, that's what I need. If I have that, that will save me. That will complete me. I'll finally be all made. If I have that kind of relationship or that kind of marriage or if I have that kind of job or that kind of car, if I can roll like that or people look at me with that kind of respect or if I can always be right in the room, if I have that, like it's going to make me and I will be safe and I will be secure. And we say, my precious, my precious, my precious. And the warning is this envy is decaying. It's consuming. And so the warning is fret not. Be not envious. And now the question, if we see it in our lives, is like, what do we do? What do we do? How how do I fight this thing, this, this power that's in my life? How do I fight it? And good news, good news, people, good news. We have so many ways to fight it right here in Psalms 37. David did us a solid here. And so look at this. So we ask the question, how do I fight? And he says, man, you got to look, you got to believe, you've got to do. Like David is telling us that when you wake up in the morning and you feel envy burning in your soul, for those who seem to prosper, even though they care nothing about God, or those who seem to prosper, even though they're slackers, or those who seem just to get everything that works out for them, it says... That we must look at his law and his promises and we must trust, we must meditate, and we must act upon them. Here, the promises of God, it, it tells us, like it, it's in commands, it tells us to look ahead. Don't just look at now, look ahead. And then it says for us to look down at our hands and what we're doing and to focus what we do. So look ahead. Look down at your hands, focus on what you do. What do I need to do? What's the right thing to do right now? And then it tells us to look up. Look at the character and nature of Jesus. And so the first, like, look ahead. We could say it like this, look ahead, it won't last. In verses 1 and 2, and then again in verse 8 through 10, like David tells us, it looks like they will always prosper. It looks like to you that they will always get away with it. It looks like to you that you're a fool for not joining in because everyone else is, you know, having their cake and eating it too. I had to explain that to Cruz. I used that phrase on him. I'm like, ah, oh, it's like, you know, having your cake and eating it too. He's like, what? And I was like, well, I mean, you can't have it because if you eat it, you don't have it anymore. He's like, no, it's in your stomach. I'm like, no, it. <laughs> no, just go to bed. I don't know why they say it. You know, I mean, so, I mean. But it looks like you're a fool for not joining in. And David just says, look ahead, it won't last. So look at verse 1. Fret not for yourselves because of evildoers, nor be envious of wrongdoers. Verse 2. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Herb. H is silent. They will soon fade. Look at verse 8 in the middle of it. Fret not. It tends only to evil, for the evildoer shall be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Verse 10. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. Look at those phrases. They will soon fade. They will be cut off. In just a little while, they will be no more. Like David is begging us to have a longer perspective, to look further, to just wait. 
in light of eternity, even if it's this entire life, it will be nothing in light of eternity. There will be far more joy. It will prove all the commands right. Just wait. Look ahead. It won't last. Now, that's hard to do. It takes an incredible amount of maturity to look at your circumstance, to look at a shortcut to get ahead, and to say, I'm going to pause on that, and I'm going to try to have foresight. I'm going to try to look ahead. Like, it's a small thing, but it's a hard thing. You know, I mean, when, when you're looking around, and you, you're trying to hold out and you're trying to wait because you want to believe all the truths about what God says about the beauty of marriage and sexuality. And you're trying to hold out and you see a lot of people who don't. And it seems like they're having a lot of fun. It seems hard. But David's going to say, just wait. Look ahead it won't last. You know, the other emotion that we could look at, kind of like look down at your hands and do right. Like you look in verse uh, 2 and 3, and we'll kind of jump around. What we see is we see some action verbs. They're about doing, and they're, they're reflections of promises. Like, hey, just do this because the promise is already working. Just do it. And, and so these promises that we see in verse uh, 3, you know, right there, we see like trust, do good, dwell befriend. And so let's just read it. And so it says, first, the the promise of it won't last for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. And now these, these, these like doing, look at your hands. What are you doing? Verse three, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. And so if I was just going to summarize what that's saying, it would sound something like this. We trust And do good as we befriend where God has placed us to dwell. And so just like verse 3, it puts trust and do good together. And then it puts dwell and befriend faithfulness together. Let's look at those together. And so the first trust and do good, like that is hard. Doing good when it doesn't feel like it's benefiting you is hard. But at least it gives you direction of what to fill your hands with in the moment. Like, this, this is a hard thing. Like, when, when you're, you're so envious upon something, it seems to just be working out for them. There doesn't seem to be any consequences for them. And you're like, man, what do I do? God is saying, fill your hands, fill your heart with trust and doing good. Just that phrase. Like, in a moment of temptation. Like, just saying, what would be the trusting and doing good thing. Like that actually will probably lead you to something. And if it doesn't, call a friend, explain what you're dealing with, and say, what would be the trusting and doing good thing? And I guarantee they're going to help you with an answer. It gives you direction. You know, and I, I just, I want to encourage you. And this is for, um, I mean, we, we, we have a lot of young people, and there's a lot of sexual temptation out there. And, um, and the gospel is for people who've messed up and made mistakes. And there's, you can be renewed and you can new vigor to say, man, I just, I'm looking forward um, beyond the right now and beyond this weekend. Like in student ministry, we also worked with parents a lot. 
And so in some, we got snapshots of things, you know, kind of warnings that we put in our pocket just to hold on to. And then, you know, we started two college ministries, and, and now we're here. And so we did, always did a lot of premarital counseling, and sometimes it was marriage counseling. And I just want, I never, with one exception, I'll explain that. It's almost never. I never sat down with a healthy, vibrant marriage, like a healthy, vibrant couple, and they just said, man, I, I kind of just wish we would have played the field a little bit more. I think that'd really be blessing us right now. I never, that, that never came up. I had one guy say that, but he shortly after that blew his life up and lost everything. And I wouldn't have called their marriage like thriving. I mean, his was more in a discontent statement of like, man, I mean, I, I tried to wait out and I just, I don't know if it was worth it. Like, I just, that, those don't go together. And so that would be like, trust and do good. Wait for the goodness of the Lord. And I'm not, I don't, I'm not telling you that if you do that, that God's going to give you like the hottest wife or the biggest bicep husband. And I'm not telling you that. I don't know. You know, he might like cats. You know, I don't know. I'm just telling you that the goodness of God is for you. Trust and wait. Do good. And so the first, we couple them together. Trust and do good. And I'm not saying that's easy. I'm saying it's available for you now. God, what do I do? I feel envious. I'm putting some of those people in this like beyond salvation category. What do I do? What is the trusting and doing good thing right now? The other, dwell and befriend faithfulness. Like dwell, it's pretty easy to understand, but really hard to do. Just stay and wait. Like God has placed you there. What does it look like to be faithful there? God has put you in that land. What does it look like to cultivate that land? God has put you in that sphere, in that field, in that friendship arena. God's put you there. What does it look like to dwell in the land, to cultivate it? Sometimes it looks like a lot of work. The other phrase, um, befriend faithfulness. Like, this is hard. You know, I mean, just the phrase itself, like if we just look at befriend faithfulness, that means when I first look at faithfulness, I don't see it as a friend. Like th- those two words, it's really hard to translate these two words because both these words are translated so many different ways in other arenas, in other places in the scriptures. And so if you look at like five different translations, you're going to get like five different ways. And so like this one says befriend faithfulness and it teaches us something about befriending faithfulness. It takes discipline to do it. It means that when you first look at that, when you first look at God's faithfulness to you in the land that he's told you to dwell, when you first look at it, it doesn't look friendly. When you first look at what faithfulness to God in that situation looks like, it doesn't look friendly. It doesn't look like what you want. In college, my, my, my life really changed as the summer after my senior year of high school and um, then I go to college, and um, freshman year was, I mean, it's what freshman year was. It, it is what it is. I love saying that. I mean, what can you say to that? It is what it is. Say something. Okay, it was what it was. Um, but then stepping into my sophomore year, I was, um, I was pledging a fraternity. I was a live-in pledge. They called us associate members, but they treated us like pledges. And uh, I'm meeting all these, these new people. And I remember this guy, his name was Rodney. 
And, uh, you know, I kind of hung out with him a little bit my sophomore year, but man, he was, he was real country. You know, I mean, he's from Sulphur and I've been to Sulphur. They have Sulphur Springs. It smells bad. And, uh, I mean, just real country. He was a really good wrestler in high school. So that bothered me too. Um, because like, if I ever like messed with him, he'd hurt me. And so I was like, I don't know if I like this guy. Um, and, uh, I mean, and there was just kind of this question. So coming into my junior year, you know, the next year, um, Rodney had actually gone through this life change. Like before he was kind of on the fence. I mean, he grew up in the faith, but wasn't for sure. And God had just intercepted his life. And he came back and he actually said he came back with this idea of like, man, God, I don't know who I'm going to hang out with. And he'll say, man, I felt like God put you, Casey, on my heart. And so he came back, he seemed really interested, but I kind of felt like the redneck, you know, punch card in my friend section was already filled. You know, I didn't know if I could take any more. I mean, how many people can you have in your life that noodle for catfish until you noodle for catfish? And uh, it's actually a ton of fun. I mean, it is the scariest thing. Uh, some call it hand fishing, but you reach, like, in Oklahoma, we have these muddy rivers. It's just what we have. And so you find these muddy banks, and you put your hand in this hole, and the whole time you're like, you want something to bite your hand so you can pull it out, but then you also don't want it to bite your hand and pull it out. And so you reach up under there, and everyone's around you. They're at the riverbank, just kind of like, yeah, all right. And you're just... <laughs> it is, and you're like, man, I just, I feel like I'm gonna cry in front of everyone. And then you grab, you throw it up, um, and you eat it. I mean, you are what you eat, you know. But I just remember literally thinking, I don't know if I want that dude to be my friend. You know, I actually have this disposition. I I just get strong opinions, and I meet someone, I just kind of fill in all the blanks, and I'm like, man, what is wrong with that dude? I don't like that guy. And then someone's like, man, you meet so-and-so, they are just like you. And you're like, oh, my God. But, like, this is telling us that sometimes you come across something or someone. In the text, it is faithfulness. And your first disposition is not befriend it. And you have to add discipline to your life. You actually have to exercise faith to say faithfulness in this moment. God's faithfulness to the boundaries of the land that he put me in, to the boundaries of my spheres. His faithfulness to me is right here and I need to dwell and I need to befriend it. Rodney has been such a good friend to me. Man, he has helped me with faith in seasons when I had little faith. He's loved me enough to confront me about attitudes of woundings that I've had, to confront me to love and to faithfulness, just to hold it open-handed of the way I've been hurt, of maybe God meant it for good. Maybe those promises aren't just for other people. Maybe they're for pastors. Befriend faithfulness. You know, another translation, it translates it, enjoy security. And man, it takes discipline to do that. I mean, everybody wants security, but sometimes the land in which you find security, it's like that because it's kind of barren. You know, if you use the picture of like a wilderness, like everyone's going to have seasons where they just kind of feel like they're out in the wilderness. 
I mean, for the, the children of Israel, it was an actual wilderness. For you, it probably won't be an actual wilderness. But it feels kind of dry. It feels kind of barren. It feels a little hopeless. Like you're just not for sure. And yet, you know what also exists in the wilderness or what doesn't exist in the wilderness? There's not a lot of predators out in the wilderness. There's a certain security in that place. And I mean, just what if God is placing you in somewhere where you say, enjoy security? I know it doesn't feel like you want it to feel. I know it doesn't look like what you want to be. But enjoy this. Learn to come to peace with it. Learn to dwell right here. Stop being envious of what's across the river. Stop being envious of what's on the other side of the state. And if you lived in western Kansas, you were always envious of eastern Kansas. Like they have trees and you're like, man, we got to get over there and get some of those trees. And so like stop feeding yourself envy and start to enjoy the security of the moment. Because just maybe. Like just maybe that season that feels void of the exciting next step that you desire, it might be the only safe place to make you into the man or woman you need to be in that next step. That next step might take far more maturity and far more strength than what you currently have. Enjoy security. Befriend faithfulness. Enjoy security. And the, the, one of the, the last translation that, that I looked at that I'm, I'm just going to throw out there. Feed on faithfulness. You know, th- this translation, it takes discipline to feed on something that you're not hungry for. I mean, it portrays someone who, who's starving to death and they may not even know what they should eat. They may not even be hungering for the right thing. But to say, in the place that God's put you, look at the faithfulness of God and feed on it. It kind of puts us, when we're warning about this envy, this, this resentful desire for something. Why not me? Or we're warned about this kind of damning hatred of us versus them. Can you see the picture of being fed upon that? Waking up in the morning, man, why not me? Every waking moment, man, that should be me. What they do to deserve that? I'm feeding my soul upon that. And although it feels like substance, it leaves me hollow and hungering for more and more. I think the Bible's trying to present like this envy or this hatred as, as salt water that we're, we're so thirsty, but we start to drink it and it just makes us more and more thirsty. In uh, the, the miniseries Band of Brothers, Easy Company rolls up on a concentration camp as they're getting closer and closer to the, the center of uh, Germany. And the guards had all abandoned the concentration camp, but it was still locked up. And so they, they come in, it looks abandoned at first, and they... they pop the gate open and suddenly they start to see these people who can barely stand walking out. They are starving to death. 
immediately they, they look at him and they start to hand out rations and water. And the people are so thankful and they're rejoicing. The gate is open, they're free, and they have what they've been desiring, food and water. And suddenly the battalion surgeon shows up and says, you have to take the food and water away from them. We have to contain them here. And so they're ordered to take what those people wanted more than anything, to pull it out of their hands as they wept and mourned and they closed the gate behind them because the the answer to starvation is not an all-you-can-eat buffet. That'll kill you. The answer to starvation is a long road of authority over you to give you what you need when you need it, to give you a little hydration, to start to build you up to solid food. And so the people in that, as the gates closed, they moaned and wept. But they were hungering for what would kill them in the moment. Like God does want fullness for you. The fullness that he wants for you is deeper and richer than what you might be thinking or what you might ever dream. But it also takes a proper place and a stewardship. And so sometimes we look at the things we want and we're like, man, I just want the all-you-can-eat buffet. And what he's saying is, no, you need structure in your life. You need me to dispense this to you so that we can bring you to maturity, wisdom, strength. And I know at the times, man, it feels like God is holding out on you. At the time, it feels like God doesn't want the best for you or have your best interest. At the time, it does not feel like the path to real abundant life. But we are warned about this. You know what I saw over and over in student ministry and, you know, people sometimes ask like, hey, after your youth pastor, what's it like being a pastor? I'm like, well, it's kind of like, being a youth pastor, but I don't have to do sleepover. You know, I don't have to do the lock-in. You know, I mean, parents would always be so excited about, yeah, let's do a lock-in. I'm like, I'm going to need about 35 adult volunteers. And then just be like crickets in the room. Like, um, man. But this verse, I came to it over and over, Proverbs 27, 7. The one who is full loathes honey. But to the one who is hungry, even bitter is sweet to them. And so it, it puts two realities. Like if you're satisfied and you're certain, and so we'll put it in this situation, you are certain that God is for you and you are satisfied when really good things like honey come around, you can pass on it. But if you're starving to death with uncertainty and it is creeping upon your life in every place, garbage can come across your table and you will consume it. This danger, it tells us that sometimes God tells us to dwell and to do good. And he tells us to look down on our hands. He tells us to look forward because he's trying to curb something. I just want to ask, has he earned your trust in the unknown? This tells us that we can fight damning hatred and resentful desire by looking forward. God says it won't last. This tells us that we can fight damning hatred and resentful desire by looking at our hands and trusting and dwelling and befriending and feeding upon faithfulness. And now let's look at Psalm 37. It tells us that we need to look up. We need to look up to God and delight. In verses 4 through 7, that's where we get the big promise. 
and we see words like this, delight, commit, be still, and wait. And I get it. No one likes to hear, be still and wait. No one likes to hear it, but it says delight. Look at verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. That is quite a promise. Find delight in where God has put you. Find delight in the person of Jesus. Find delight in what, and he will give you true desires. They may not be what you're looking for, but he says he's going to give them. They may have been what you're always seeking for, but you could never name. You know, the pursuits of what we run to aren't always what we think we're trying to get. Um, You know, the the day and age that we live in um, where pornography is so abundant, um, it's so accessible, it's so anonymous, and it's so dangerous. You know, when, when men and women run to pornography, they're not running to pornography because they like seeking dirty. They're not like, man, I just want to get dirty. That's not what they're doing. When men and women run to pornography, they're not running to pornography. It's actually not a sex thing. Like that's, in, that's involved in it. When men and women, when we, when we run to pornography, we're, there, there's something beneath all of that that's driving us. There's something good that we're seeking and we're, we're, we're going to a cheap substitute. I mean, like there, a lot of times what it is is a sense of control. Like, my life feels absolutely out of control. Have you ever noticed, and if you haven't noticed because you haven't viewed pornography, don't view pornography to notice. Like, it's always, they're always depicting control. Someone is controlling someone else. It's not wrong to want to have a grip on your life. It's not wrong to be like, man, this is out of control. But we run to something to try to fill it that poisons it. Or, or, you know, when men and women run to pornography to fill their lives... Sometimes it's because their, their life feels void of connection. Like they're, they're void of like the approval of others around them. They're void of like friendships that are satisfying or, or marriage relationships that are filling. And sometimes because they're not given into it or they're not receiving it. Like there, there's something that they're seeking. And don't ever use that as a weapon. I'm just telling you that you're actually looking for something good in all the wrong places. Like a helpful hit if that's it. Like... <clears throat> is like in those moments of temptation is to seek healthy connection. Like get out, get a cup of coffee. If you don't like coffee, develop a, a lean on coffee and then you'll like it. I mean, it's a way better addiction. Like get out. You know, sometimes when men and women run to pornography, they just desire something comfortable or easy. Or accepting. And I just ask this. Has it ever actually given that to you? I mean, has it ever actually, like, giving you anything other than discomfort? And if you're saying, yeah, it has, would it still give you comfort if other people saw? Or would you feel discomfort? And if you have a comfort with it, it's because you're not really seeing what's going on. You know, one of them, we're hoping to secure a place to, to offer a study um, for men on an accountability of how do we fight uh, pornography this fall. 
Um, and one of the first things you have to do is you have to kind of open the view of what's going on. You see, like, you want to believe. As a guy, you like want to believe, man, these girls are probably like in medical school just trying to make extra money. Um, that's not the statistic. The vast majority of them will die from overdose of drugs because bodies can't handle that. And so you have to numb the pain. And the vast majority of them will either die from overdosing of drugs or they'll kill themselves. And whether they know it or not, they're being trafficked. And when you get get to the place to hate it a little bit, I hate it. I don't want to be a part of it. And so like, see like there's actually something good that you're trying to get. Let's identify it. And that's fine the way God wants to provide for it. Like there's actually this idea of control that I'm seeking. There's this approval that I'm seeking. There's this comfort that I'm seeking. And they're all found in the person of Jesus. Like if it's the comfort piece, like 2 Corinthians 1, 2 through 4. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. All comfort who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Jesus is the comfort that we've been looking for. Jesus brings the approval that we've been looking for. Because of Jesus, God the Father, we just looked at it, will look at us and say, well done, good and faithful servant, because he brought us to that playing field. Jesus is in control of all things. Colossians 1 and 2. He's before everything, in him, everything holds together. Your life, the space of your dwelling may not feel like it's in control. Jesus has not lost control. Because of that, verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Look up. Commit. Be still and wait. His plan is to give you the desire of your heart. That's the promise of verse 4 that lands on every coffee cup. His plan is to give you the desire of your heart. Another coffee cup verse that um, I think is really helpful, and you've heard it probably, Jeremiah 29, 11, it says, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, for your good, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Like a precious promise. A precious promise that earns its yes in the person of Jesus, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. And it's also abused to assume that God just wants to give you earthly gain and he wants to establish your health and wealth and fame in this world. It's abused. But I think one idea is really profound that doesn't get spoken about often. Look at it again. What does it say about these plans? They're not for evil. What if you believe that? What if you believe that God's plans for you aren't for evil? They're not to hurt you or take from you or hold out from you. They're not for evil. His intention is not evil. His intention is good, even though you can't see it. His intention is not for evil when he thinks about you. You know, in thinking 
about just the destructive power of what envy specifically can take from you. Pontius Pilate got it right. In Mark 15.10, as Pilate was overseeing the mocked-up trial, the trumped-up charges against Jesus, he had this ingenious insight where he says this, for he, Pilate, perceiving that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him, Jesus, up. Envy can take a lot. Envy can ask you to sacrifice a lot. Out of envy, the religious leaders killed Jesus. And I fear that even for Christians in the room, out of envy, there are places where we're trying to kill Jesus. The way we fight it is we look ahead. It won't last. We look down at our hands and we just say, man, what would be, what would be the trusting, faithful thing, the doing good thing right now? But we look up to the person of Jesus and we just ask, has he earned your trust for right now? Let me pray for us. God, Lord, um, I pray as we uh, come to take communion, Lord, that we just see it as we bring all that with us. We don't have to fix our envy problem in the pews or in the chairs, and then we come up, you know, ready to take communion. Lord, we confess our envy problem. And we trust in the promises that if we confess our sins one to another, that we might be healed. And then we look and we try to feed upon faithfulness. What does it look like? Even if I don't hunger for this season or I don't hunger for this thing, like what does it look like to say, man, God, you are in charge and you know what I'm needing. I am actually starving to death in different areas. And we commit those things to be patient and we commit them to faithfulness and we commit them to prayer. Let me just go over three motions that you can have in the room. One is if you're a Christian, man, we invite you to take communion with us. The way we do it is we come down the right side of the aisle and we return on the right side of the aisle. And so we come down and we start on the bread side and we pull a piece away and we dip it into the wine or the grape juice. The wine is in the stoneware. The grape juice is in the glassware. And we remember that those promises find their yes for us because of Jesus, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The other motion in the room is like, if there is something that we are envious of, or if there is something plaguing our life, um, that, Lord, we're reaching beyond the boundaries of our life to get, like, we might just ask for prayer. Like, we'll have people in the back, and they'll, you can just walk up to them, tell them as little or as much as you want, and they're going to pray for deliverance for you. They're going to pray understanding and deliverance, the ability to fight for whatever you need. And they might just move you in the hallway to pray. Or a third motion might just be to sit and just contemplate who Jesus is for you. All those options are available. God, Lord, we love you. And Lord, let your spirit move us. In Jesus' name, amen. Come when you're ready.